So this morning, we're going to take a break from 1 John. Um, you're gonna, we're going to be in two separate places this morning. Turn with me in Psalm 46. We'll be in Psalm 46. And then also, uh, put a marker there and then turn over to Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36. You know, it was right about this time, X amount of years ago. I can't even do the math. Um, I have no idea. But I was, right about this time in August... When I was a freshman in high school, we reported to football camp. And being a freshman, you know what that is. You're the lowest man on the totem pole. Now, let me, let me tell you about our football team that year. See, I come from a little tiny school. Um, we only graduate 100 kids, single A. Um, but this one year, our football team, it, it, they went undefeated by the end of the season. So we were great. That means... Um, that all of the older kids, all the seniors, all the upperclassmen on the team, you know, they were huge, man. Uh, the linemen were all huge. We had big running backs and the, the works, okay? So we ended up losing in the semifinals to Claritin, and that's the year that they won the states. But nevertheless, you show up to, fo- um, uh, t- you show up to football camp, um, and we slept in, in our school gym. So you just brought air mattresses. You brought a bag full of clothes. By the end of the week, you could smell, um, like not, well, I guess you couldn't smell anything but sweat in the gym. But what happens as the freshman, being the lowest man on the totem pole, like the 10 or 12, I have, no, I have no idea how many freshmen there were at that time. But you're treated as a freshman, let me just tell you. <laughs> you're the second team defense, you're the second team offense, so the first team goes full speed, and these guys are, I was like 20 pounds smaller than I was now and shorter, and um, so, you know, you get beat up because of the practice and hitting and things like that, not physically beat up. Um, not only that, but all the freshmen, <laughs> one of the things that they would do is um, we all just got our head, head shaved, and so some, some of the kids got intricate designs shaved in their head, and and at night, uh, sometimes there's like candy and food thrown at you from across the gym. And so it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming being there and, and just kind of, you always have to have your head on a swivel. We never know what's going to be coming. But you know what made it great that freshman year for me? My cousin was a senior. Not only was he the se- a senior, but he was the captain on the football team. And I mean, my cousin was jacked. He was, he's huge, okay? He, he was just, he was ripped. And so for me, it was fantastic. Of course, yeah, I had to carry the water and things like that. But guess where I got to sleep? Right next to my cousin. And guess how much, guess how much food or, or trouble was thrown his way in the middle of the night? Zero. <laughs> and not only that, but, you know, he, like would sh- he took care of me. He shaved my head nice and everything like that. I didn't get a crazy haircut or anything like that. But all around me that, that whole week, it's so overwhelming. It's... it's it's just so much. And yet to know that there was something or someone, in essence, in this particular case, that was my help the whole week. And so this morning, just thinking about that, what we're going to be looking at is in Psalm 46 is an example of this as well. Now, before we get into Psalm 46, 7 and 8, we're going to go all through, through all three of them this morning. You're on Isaiah 36, and we have to read this, but bear with me. It's a little bit um, I'm just going to read down through it, but you have to have the background. Man, if you don't know the background to Psalm 46, 7, and 8, it's, you're just not going to get the full context of everything that's going on. So I'm going to read down through uh, Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 36 and then a few verses in Isaiah 37, and then we're going to break down Psalm 46, 7, and 8. 
So starting in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So this is king, he's the king of Judah in the, in the southern kingdoms, right? Um, king Hezekiah, that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So the Assyrians, they're coming up, they're attacking, and they're taking, and they're conquering all the cities in Judah. And then the king of Assyria said to Rebshakeh, with a, with a great army, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So now they're, they're making their way to Jerusalem, the last city in Judah to be conquered. And he said, and, excuse me, and he stood by the aqueduct from the up, upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So these are the guys from Judah. They're coming out to, to meet the Assyrian messenger on the wall. Then said Rabshakeh, he said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say, you speak of having plans and, of, and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of a broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go in, into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. Verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places we have and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you who worship before, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give to you 2,000 horses if you are able to, to part um, to put riders on them. How will you then repel on one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the word against this land to destroy it? The word said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Verse 11, And Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, they said to Rebshaka, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, but do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But, but the Rebshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and, and to you to speak the words and not to men who sit on the wall, who eat and drink in their own waste with you? Verse 13. Hang in there. I'm, this has a point. Then said Rebshakeh, stood as he stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. For So now he's speaking to the people. For you will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen for, to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by um, buy a present and come out to me. And every one of you who eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree and every one of you who drink from the waters of his own cistern, verse 17, until I come and take you away to the land uh, like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a, a land of bread and vineyards, beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Verse 19, where are the gods of Hamath? And Arpad, where the gods of, however you say, Sepharium. Indeed, they have delivered, indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who are among all the gods 
Who among all the gods, excuse me, of these, of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they held their peace, and they answered him not a word for the king's commandment. Do not answer him. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with torn clothes and told him all the words of Rabshakeh. So a couple verses here in 37. And so it was that when Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. He went to church. And then uh, jumping down, they... Uh, he sends, and he sends these guys out to Isaiah to seek the prophet of Isaiah, to seek the Lord for him. And check it out, verse 5, this is the Lord's response as he, in prayer, he sought the Lord for help. So the servants of King Hezekiah, he came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have his blasphemy. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And so jump down. Um, you, you can read that. Verse 14, it says, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And he went up into the house of the Lord, and he spread it. He laid it all out before the Lord. And Hezekiah, he prayed to the Lord. And check this out. Look at Hezekiah as he prays, how he describes the Lord, because he knew who the Lord was. Then Hezekiah, as he prayed to the Lord, he said, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and, he and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Shennacherib, which he has sent to, to reproach Excuse me, the living God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations. They have conquered all the nations, their land, and they have cast their gods into fire, for they were not gods. Did you catch that? But the works of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they destroyed them. Now, therefore, Lord, our God, save us from the hand of all the kingdoms of the earth. May know that you are Lord and you alone. And so, Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you that although Lord, there's an enemy Lord, there's an enemy of our souls. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you for help, for strength, and for deliverance. And Father, um, would you help us to see that, Lord, this morning as we open your word? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see how overwhelming of a situation King Hezekiah and Judah was in. They had no hope. The Assyrian army, they were going through, they were conquering all the nations like that around them. No one could stand up against them. No one had a chance. And so, finally, conquering all these other cities in Judah, they come up to Jerusalem, and they're taunting them. They're questioning, did you catch what the enemy does there? He questions who God is. What do you mean you're trusting in God? Who, look, all these other people, they trusted in their gods and did nothing. They weren't able to save them. And so, he taunts, he makes us, and he, he, he forces us and he tries to deceive us in thinking, who, knowing the character and the nature of God. If you go back and if you were to take note there, how many times he just said, do you trust? Don't trust the Lord. Don't, don't listen to Hezekiah who says, trust in God, man. Go back and, and read it. And you see, he even says, God sent me up to, to destroy you. The lies that comes from the enemy. And you see, this is significant for us because not only practically do we have situations that, that come into our lives, 
places or, or circumstances that happen that are overwhelming, that, that we have no hope, which we can call out to the Lord to. But you see, Satan has surrounded us. Because the Bible says that, that there are none righteous, no, not one. Every single person on the earth, whether they recognize it or whether they, they realize it or not, is a sinner. And as that, you see, because we are a sinner and God is perfectly holy, just, and, and he's righteous, as we've been learning through First um, John, that he must punish sin. And so the power of Satan is that he can condemn us, and we're guilty before God. So do you see how this applies to us spiritually as well? We have no hope. We're surrounded. And yet, the Lord has come and he's saved and delivered us. So let's turn to Psalm 46 now. Let's look how God specifically does this. We're going to break it down into more details. Psalm 46. And and this psalm is written in response to what the Lord did in delivering Hezekiah in the kingdom of Judah— from Sennacherib. So this is, this is the response. It's interesting. We're going to do Psalm 46, 7, and 8, and each psalm kind of ha- has a different take on it. Psalm 46 specifically um, speaks of God's deliverance. So this is somebody testifying. They're, personal, they're like just sharing personally of all that God has done. So look at me with verse 1. It says, For God is our refuge and, and strength, a very present help in trouble, Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters roar and are troubled, though the mountains shake with a swelling, Selah. So here in verse, the first three verses, we see the people looking to the Lord. Now, look again at verse 1. You see three descriptions of, of God. He's described in three specific ways here. You see that they say that God is our refuge— right? Number one, God is our strength. And then finally, that God is our very present help in trouble. So again, I wanted to read uh, Isaiah 36 and 37 so you had the background and you knew what was going on. Think about this. In the storms of life and all that goes on, we have a refuge in God. Now, just asking and, and thinking about this practically, when do we have to take refuge? How about when there's a thunderstorm and the rain's just coming down outside, right? The wind's blowing and maybe there's some tree branches or or maybe it's one of those storms where there's hail coming down. Man, if you don't seek refuge, you might just find yourself hurt physically or or, uh, we don't live where there's a lot of tornadoes. There has been a a couple here. But it's it's in the storms. It's when there's enemies, when, when we're in the midst of a battle that we need a refuge to come to. And the Lord says... He calls himself a refuge for us, a place of shelter that we can run to, a place that we can go for safety. But what do we need to run? How how do we relate this spiritually to ourselves? Well, I don't know about you, but oftentimes, you know, I have (laughs) what the Bible calls fiery darts thrown into my head. Man, there's thoughts, there's lies that Satan sends our way. And we need a place of refuge to go to when that happens. All of us. In, in, in um, Proverbs 18, um, let me look at it here. Proverbs 18.10, it tells us that God is our refuge. And, and look at this specifically. In Proverbs 18.10, um, the author s- 
says there that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous, righteous run to it and are safe. So you see, the name of the Lord, he tells us, is that refuge or that strong place where we can go for shelter. And when it says the name of the Lord, you know what he's saying is the name of the Lord speaks of God's character or the attributes of God. See, as you know who the Lord is, you can rightly take the lies of Satan and put them against the truth of who God has revealed himself to be in his word. And we have refuge. Man, even thinking about this um, in terms of what our salvation, right? See, because each and every one of us are sinners, and because there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to work or to be good enough or to earn our salvation, there's that, you know, it says that Satan is the, the accuser of the brethren, he sa- as the Bible says. He's there always accusing, look what Xander did, man. He, he sinned. He's a sinner. And yet we can run to the Lord even for refuge from condemnation. Because as Romans 8, 1 says, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Right? So God, our refuge in help. God, our refuge in trouble. I also like it, too. If you remember, what, what did Jesus say about this? Remember in John um, 10, verses 28 and 29, Jesus, he, he's speaking there to the people, and he says that, that, that he holds us in, our, in his hand and that there's no one's able to snatch us out of his hand. That's comforting, man. To think, to think about somebody, when you, you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling under attack, you just need a hug sometimes, right? Someone to hold you. I think about like when a, a child runs to their parent just for refuge in whatever trouble it is. They hold him in their arms. It says that God holds you in his hands. And remember, as he holds you, as you're in his hands, what do you see? Remember, you'll even see, we see Christ's scarred hands for us. And we're reminded of his love for us. So God, our refuge, not only that, but he says, our strength. See, not only Israel and, or Judah at that time, they could, they could run they, they had refuge within the city, but they had no power to deliver themselves, did they? There was nothing that they could do to make the enemy go away, to defeat the enemy. They needed something apart, outside of themselves, to be their strength. And the same is true for you and I. You see, like I mentioned, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. It's not having a, a good heart or maybe I'll clean myself up, a good attitude. But there's only one thing, one person who has come and who has the strength to deliver us from our sins. You see, we get an interesting picture of this in Exodus 15. In Exodus 15, it's the first song ever recorded in the Bible, the song of, does anybody know? Miriam, the song of Miriam. And what happened just before that is they crossed the Red Sea. God has, had delivered his people from, from Egypt, from the power of Pharaoh, everything, they were under bondage. They crossed the Red Sea, and, and, and in Exodus 15 too, Miriam begins to sing of the strength or the power of the Lord to deliver his people. And Exodus being a picture of God saving us from our sins. You see, we're powerless. 
The condemnation, man, it's true. I have nothing against what Satan says. There's nothing I can do. But I can run to one, and you and I, we can run to one who, by the blood of Jesus Christ, he defeated death, right? And that strength, it was seen on, not only did he die, but he rose again, defeating death. And that's our strength. That's our hope. It's interesting. Did you catch even as we are reading through Isaiah um, 36, that the enemy even says, well, what's your strength? Man, what can you do? You, you have nothing against me. He kept saying that. And sometimes we can feel that way. We feel defeated. But run to Christ. Your strength, our strength, his blood to deliver us from our sins. Finally, the second half of verse 1, he says, a very present help in trouble. I have a little note in my Bible that, that translates that an abundantly available help in trouble. See, it's not only, not only um, is God our refuge, not only is his our, he our strength, but you see, he's a very present help when we need that strength. Because it's different if, if you know, you have to call someone and you have to wait for them to come and to help you, right? They're not there at the moment that you need, a, you need them. But you see, our Lord is different. He is present with us. And he's our present help. And what difference does that make? What difference does that make in your life? And I, I think about just as we walk through life, man, we, each and every one of us as a Christian, you're promised that you'll have tribulations. You'll have trials and difficulties. The world doesn't, so do we. But the difference is, as we, got, as we walk through those trials, others can see the Lord in us. They can see one who is present with us in that. Now it's interesting though, it's really, really interesting if you think about what did, what did Jesus say? A very present help in trouble. Remember that he said to his disciples that it's good, or it's a good thing that, that I depart from you and I go to be with the Father. Because in doing that, he said that, that I will leave you with the comforter or the, help, the helper speaking of whom? The Holy Spirit. And so even for us today, we have a very present help in our troubles and our difficulties. The Holy Spirit who dwells within our hearts, who is with us. And I think about it too. Not only did God know that we had no hope um, because of our sins, but he came and he sent his son to be present with us, to walk as man, right? and to fulfill the law perfectly, and, and to die in our place on the cross, he descended to help us, to save us. And so even, you know, even if you're going through something, whatever you're going through, take hope in that, take heart in that, because that says that God loves you. And you see, <laughs> you might be asking yourself, man, Xander, that's good that you're saying that, and, and it's good to know, and, and I believe that, and I agree with it intellectually, everything that you're saying. But why hasn't God delivered me? Why am I still going through this? Why haven't I been healed? Why hasn't my um, marriage been, been touched? Why do I still go through difficult times? Well, remember, there was three other guys in the Bible who, who experienced the same thing. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, when King Nebuchadnezzar, he called them to, up to them because they didn't bow down to the chocolate bunny. No, I, see, if you knew Veggie Tales, you know what the chocolate bunny was. 
It's the golden statue, their gods that they made. Uh, Gabe was playing VeggieTales earlier before anybody came in here. Um, so we got, we got a blast to the fa- past. But anyways, they wouldn't, they wouldn't bow down. And you know what um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said? They said, King, we're, we're not going to bow down to your God. And because he's not truly God. Our God is able to save us. They said, he will save us. But catch this. They said, but even if he, even if the Lord chooses not to save us, know that he truly is God. And you see, here's a, something that maybe isn't popular to say. And, and I don't mean this in a mean way. But life isn't all about us. It's not about our comfort. Because God, he did choose to save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they knew that even if they died right there in the fire, their prayer was that you would know that he's still God. And you know, as they were thrown into the fire, there was a fourth person that King Nebi saw in the fire with them. It was one, it was the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. And you see, even if God allows you to continue to go through the trials and the tribulations, the difficulties of life, you experience Christ in a way that you never have before. And you know what? When they were brought out, um, King Nebuchadnezzar started to, he's like, who is this God? You you truly serve the Lord. Because I saw him there with you, man. And so even when God chooses not to deliver us from whatever it is, others, it's an others, it's an opportunity, excuse me, for others to see Christ in and through your life. But the situation He says, all of this, knowing all of this, verse 2, look at the result. He says, therefore, because of all that he said, because God is our refuge, because he's our strength and he's our very present help in trouble, I will not be afraid. And man, do we need to hear that? Do I need to hear that today? And it's it's funny, um, well, before I do that, Psalm, it's uh, Psalm 910. It says that, for those who know the name of the Lord, they, they will, I'm just going to read it because I'm butchering it. That's why we have, I can just turn there, right? Psalm 9, 10, it says, and those who know your name, speaking the name of the Lord, will put their trust in you. See, as you know the character, the nature, the attributes of God, the Bible says that the result is that they will trust in who he is. See, the result of knowing that God is my refuge, that he's my strength, that he's a very present in help and trouble, makes us trust him, the opposite of being fearful. And so we don't need to fear. You know, one uh, lady came up, Warren Wearsby, he tells this story about how this lady came up to him and, and she was reading, um, I forget what verse it is, but it says, she found this verse, and I think it's in the Psalms, and it says that when I am afraid, I will trust in the Lord. Essentially, it's what the, the, the psalmist says. And I say, or um, Warren Wearsby replies back to her, and he said, I'll do you one up. Uh, Isaiah 12, 2. It says, trust and don't be afraid. <laughs> Excuse me. So you see, for us, we can go through life trusting in God. And when we are afraid, what do we do? We run to the name of God like we saw in Proverbs. We run to his attributes, Psalm 910, and we need not fear because we know who our God is. We have an answer to the lies of the enemies, just like Hezekiah did when the king of Assyria sent his messenger to him. So we don't need to be afraid, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. You see, guys, this isn't just like, oh man, um, my car broke down and I'm not going to make it to work today on time. Although that happens, this is speaking of something significant. 
you know, you get the call that we have a, a health issue, right? Someone, our, our child, man, they're not walking with the Lord. Or, or, you know, we have a relative who's going through some things. I lost my job, whatever it may be. Because look, there's ripple effects from it too. Even if the mountains be carried into the sea, though the waters roar and be, roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Think about that. Like the tsunamis and everything that can come from earthquakes, the, the after effect that, that touches so many. Even when those sorts of things come to be true in our lives, the Lord is saying that he is our refuge and strength and our help in that. So verse 4, look at this. He says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations regarded, or excuse me, the nations raged. The, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. God, the God of Jacob, is our refuge. Do you notice that in each, as this psalm, as it breaks down to, into the three different sections, you see, it always comes back to is that God is with us. God is with us. But here, speaking specifically, we have a cool example. The city of um, Jerusalem, it's a unique city in, in that it's built up on a mountain, right? And it's unlike a lot of other cities because there wasn't a direct water source to give life and sustenance to the people. There, it, was, it wasn't built on a riverbank. It wasn't built next to um, an ocean or, or whatever, anything like that where there was life, where there was water. So what the— enemies of at that time oftentimes what they would do is they would come and they they would surround the city and they would do this thing they would take it siege and that's in essence they would sit out there and they say we know that you don't have a walmart in there so we're going to sit here either until you starve to death or you just give up and they just wait it out and you see for israel as the enemies would come up against them they're like man this is this is a this is like lebron shooting a three-pointer it's it's no questions asked we're going to get this one right because they don't even have a source of water. But in verse 4, he says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. What the enemies didn't know is that there is this tunnel that King Hezekiah built. And it's rightly, rightly called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And you can still actually go to Israel and you can walk through it today. But what he did, it was this en engineering um, marvel, and it still is, is that he, he had two different teams digging underground from um, the Gihon Springs outside of the city, and they dug this tunnel, and they dug it all the way under the city wall, and they came up to the pool of Siloam. And so Israel, they had this source, this spring, this river that would give life, that would give water to the people that the enemies had no idea of. And so even as they were besieged, as they were— um, without any hope from the enemy's perspective, they still had something within them that would make them glad. And it's interesting. There's another place in the Old Testament. It's Ezekiel 47. And if you go there and read verses 1 through 12, Ezekiel 47 says um, the prophet, is, he's being guided there by this, by this guy, excuse me, guide, and he goes into the temple, and from the Holy of Holies, there's this like little trickle of water coming forth. 
And then he walks outside the temple into the city and, and he gets a little bit deeper and he keeps going down until it's like knee deep, waist deep, and then um, it, he can't stand in it anymore. It's over his head. And by that time, um, when, the, when the prophet sees that they're at the Dead Sea, okay? And what's significant though is that when he looks around, there's life in the Dead Sea. There's fish, there's, there's plant life. Now, if you know anything about the Dead Sea, um, it's like one of the lowest points on earth, I believe. And so all it is is just there's this huge or dense concentration of salt in, in the water there. So there's no hope of having any life. You can actually go into the Dead Sea, and if you lay on your back, you'll just float. You don't need like a, you don't need a pool noodle or, or a little floaties or anything like that. You can just lay back, and, and you'll be floating on the water because it's so dense of all the minerals that's in it. And so it, it's a picture of there's this stream. What is it that, that is giving life now? But Jesus tells us more about this in John. In the book of John, in, um, excuse me, in, in John 7, verses 37 through 39, listen to what Jesus said about a river. He says, On the last days, that great day of the feast, Je- Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has, has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And you see, for us, the reality is that we have this same river within us. The Holy Spirit, which is, right, we're, we're born again by a new seed. The Holy Spirit has come, and now he dwells within you and I. And it's interesting because from the world's perspective, you think about it practically, even with Hezekiah, right? From his perspective, from the world's perspective, or a serious perspective, everything that, that they had, any hope, any joy, whatever it was, it was all cut off, wasn't it? They have nothing. There's nothing to be joyful of. But they had a river. They had something within their city. And you see, even in the midst of life, as you and I, we go through these difficulties, the reality is that, that we can still be filled with joy because you have the Holy Spirit. You have God living inside of you. Life-giving. And the world just doesn't get it, man. Because they don't, they don't know what it is. It's not because I got a job raise. It's not because I got a new car or X, Y, Z. All those things, I can lose them all. But you have this joy that others can see and they question and they want to know, man, are you real? Is this a real deal? You get to share about the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for you. And so, continuing on there in in verse 8, come, behold the works of of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So what does the Lord say now, and, and, and what do we see the psalmist writing in response? 
He says, knowing, knowing who God is, right? Knowing that he, he is strong to deliver us. Knowing that we can run to him. Knowing, man, that we have a life within us, the Holy Spirit, a, a river flowing within us. He says, be still. Take your hands off, in essence. That's one of the little literal translations of that. Take your hands off and know or see that I am God. And what happened, what happened practically with Hezekiah? You see, we didn't read it, but I'm going to share with you. I'll read, I'll read um, Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 37. In verse, verse 36, it says, this is, so this is after um, Isaiah, he prayed to the Lord. Excuse me, Isaiah and Hezekiah, I guess they, they both were praying to the Lord. The Lord said that they would deliver. Now look at the results of this, okay? So this is Isaiah 37, starting with verse 36. It says, In the angel of the Lord, he went out, and he killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people rose in the morning, they were all corpse, all dead. <laughs> you see that? So the 185,000 soldiers that surrounded, the Syrian soldiers that, that, that surrounded the city, and the angel of the Lord, you keep seeing that? He went out and killed them all at, the, at night. And I like, when they all woke up, they were dead. <laughs> right? So what he's saying here is, guys, that we can live a life of rest. We can take our hands off of life and be still and know that God is God. He will deliver us. Now, think about this in, in two sense with me, in two different ways, practically. Number one, there's situations in life where we're to pray like um, Isaiah did, like Hezekiah did. You come and you're—where you are now, you're in the house of the Lord. You're in, the, you're in church, right? And you lay these things. You can come to the prayer meetings. You're, you're here to hear from his word, get direction from him. And we're to participate in God with those things, right? But then there's a sense, there's certain times where, where we just have to commit it to the Lord. In whatever situation sometimes that is, we pray. If there's anything to obey in his word or, or if there's a commandment to heed, we do that. But we commit it to the Lord and we can live, uh, we can live lives of rest. But the trouble is, is that oftentimes in the church um, or as Christians— we, have our, we want to put our hands on the things that we, we should really take our hands off. And we take our hands off of things that, that we—wait, what did I just say? We should take our hands off of things that we should really put our hands on. Totally lost my train of thought. What do I mean by that? You see, well, man, the job situation, or I don't know how this is going to work out. So I can put my hands on it, and I can begin to try to manipulate the situation— and what I'm saying and what, what you and I, we say when we do that is that we don't trust God to do what's best for us. And we don't trust him with the outcome. In essence, we're not letting him be God. But at the same time, there's things in the church where we take our hands off of where we really need to approach it. It makes me think of one of David's mighty men. And I forget his name, but he said that as he went out to battle, he clung to the sword and he fought all day long. And he killed so many people that, that they had to pry the sword out of his hand. It was like, yesterday I was like building this retaining wall and this morning when I woke up because I kept picking up the bricks with my hands. Um, it feels like my hands are stuck like this because they're just so tired. But that's what he's saying. That's the picture of that, that, um, that the Bible is giving us, that his hand was clung to the sword. See, we need to have our hands on the word of God. We need to handle it. We need to be in it. Not only that, but we need to take the word of God and we need to fight against the sin in our lives. 
and the sin, be honest, right, the sin in, in those around us. See, we want to we sit back sometimes, and I don't want to offend that person. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to make them upset at me, where in, instead of approaching them about what we see going on. Not, I'm not saying it's like some legalistic thing where we're coming down on people. That's not what I mean, but I mean out of love, putting ourselves in the, other's peop- the other person's shoes. Because you know what Jesus did when the disciples, as they went up um, to, to eat? I think it was the Last Supper. I, you'll have to check me. Don't quote me on that. But anyways, they went up, and as they're going up to the supper, they're all arguing with each other about who's going to be greatest. These are the disciples. And they sit there, okay, and, and what they should be doing is that when they get into the room, they're still arguing with each other. The proper thing for them to do was to go and to wash the feet as they entered in. And yet, what did Jesus do? He came, and, and he took that, and he girded his loins about himself, and he began to wash their own feet. And you see, that's what I'm talking about. We're willing to, how do you know if I should say something to somebody or not? Well, are you willing to get down and to wash their feet and to sit with them? Not to gossip about it. But what about us and our families? What about us as a church? Let's take hold of the things, put our hands on the things that the Lord says, but at the same time, rest and know that he is God. Secondly, think of, take a step back. What about salvation? Because I'm running, because I've run to the Lord as my refuge, as my strength, I know that he will deliver me. See, you and I, we're called, we can live lives of rest. That doesn't mean that we don't work, but I no longer have to strive. I no longer have to work for my salvation because it has already had, it, it's already been wrought. It's already been conquered. Christ has done it all for me. And that's why Jesus was able to say that, he, he, remember he said, Come unto me, all you who weary and, and are heavy, heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, and I will give you rest, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And although Jesus, man, it says that he got up early, he was weary, he was tired, he was always with the multitudes of people, he can still rest. And he calls us that, to live lives of resting in him. Because it's finished, guys. It's finished. There's no more striving. Psalm 47 then. So Psalm 46, we see how God has delivered what he has done. Psalm 47 is a psalm declaring to the nations all that God has done. And why is that significant? Remember when we were reading in Isaiah, it says, remember um, that, that the Assyrians, what they were saying is, look, all these other nations, they trusted in their gods and they weren't able to deliver them. So who is your God that he is able to deliver you? And in essence, the Lord gives, gives a picture there where because he's able to deliver, he's saying, those are all false gods and I truly am the Lord. And so this psalm declares to the nations who God is, that he truly is God. It's also, um, it's also sometimes referred to the song of the millennium. And you'll see why here in a second. Um, but it's read on the Jewish New Year, um, and it's also read on Ascension Day. So Ascension Day is when Christ ascended to heaven 40 days after Easter, right? We know that. So this is the psalm that the Jews would read at that time. Let's look at it. Verse 1, O clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High, He's awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. 
He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. So he, even in those first four verses, he's saying, sing out, man. Declare, clap. Praise the Lord for all that he's done that others may see. What about our lives? Do I sing, is my life a life of worship unto the Lord? What are we listening to? As I walk into work, man, am I listening, or am I just singing worship songs to God? Sometimes I've done that, and I, like, you know, just people are just, give you that eyes, like, what in the world is this? But it's not to be, it's not some religious thing because I'm holier than thou. It's simply in response of all that God's done, right? He puts a new song in our heart, the Bible tells us. So we're to be ones who sing, who shout to God. And I like verse 4 there. It says that he will, choo- he will choose our inheritance for us. And you know in 1 Peter 4 it says that God has chosen you. You are God's chosen inheritance. An inheritance being something of great value, of great worth, of great anticipation. Yet God says, look, I have chosen you. I've chosen you. And you, f- you feel even this morning rejected by the world, rejected by friends that you don't fit in. Do you know that you were chosen by God? He's chosen you. And look, at the end of the verse, it says, the excellence of Jacob whom he loves. And I like that because Jacob in the Bible speaks of when, when before he beca- Israel became Israel, he was Jacob always striving and wrestling. And God loved you. He chose you before the foundations of the world, right? Before I did anything, before you did anything. So he chooses our inheritance for us. Speaking of how we have him, he's our inheritance, and we're also his inheritance. He loves us. Verse 5, and here you go. This is where we begin to understand and see the, why it's called the Ascension Psalm. In the song of the millennium, it says that God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Now, verse 5, when you see that God, he has gone up with a shout, really, if you put, about, put it in the context of um, Hezekiah there, and, and one night, right, all the enemy was wiped out. In essence, what they're picturing is that God has come down, he has saved them, and now he has ascended back up. That's the, that's the word picture that it's showing. But here's the cool thing. For you and I, we also know the same is true, and we referred to it earlier, that Jesus Christ, he has come down. He has come, he, he has saved us, he has delivered us, and now he has ascended back And it says, the Bible tells us that he's seated at the right hand of God. You can write down and you can go and look um, later in your your own personal studies. Mark 16, 19, we see this. And John 3, 13. Knowing that Christ has come, that he's, he's come, dwelt among us, saved us. What's our response? See why we should be ones who who live lives of praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, as it says there in verse 6. Sing praises to our king. Not only that, but we can, be, we can be ones who sing praise now because we have a hope for heaven. Because 
when we read in verse 5 that God has gone up with a shout, with a sound of a trumpet, it should have triggered something in your brain because we've been talking about it on Wednesday nights. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, I believe it is, um, yeah, 4.16, it says that we will all be caught up in the twinkling of, of an eye to be with Christ, his bride, caught up with him. Speaking of when you and I are raptured, right? The church is raptured to be in heaven. So we have a hope, guys. And even though, man, even though the, it might be hard and it's going to be difficult here on earth, we can be ones who sing praise because we have a hope and a future, a confident expectation for coming good in, what, in knowing that we will be with the Lord one day in heaven. But verse 8, he continues on and he says here, For God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And it's cool. You see, Christ, we know in Hebrews 10, it tells us that he, um, also being the, our perfect high priest, right? He's right now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. But it's cool to think about how he's seated because the work's been finished. So he's seated on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of, God, of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. And so this morning too, do you know that God reigns, that he's on his throne? If you, you, you might be asking, well, if that's true, then why are there still difficulties in the world? Why does God let all this injustice go on, go on still? Well, it's key. So you have to know that, that th- we still live in the age, in the, in the rule and the reign of man. This isn't, God hasn't, God's still permitting this to happen. He's still permitting people to, to choose and to have free choice. Well, why, you might say? Although he, he doesn't, he's not, well, what's the right way to say this? He permits sin. He's not the author of sin. It's, the mis- it's people's misuse of their free will, right? But you see, one day he will reign and every knee will bow before him. And people today, they may still reject God as king, as Lord, but it doesn't change. It doesn't dethrone him. Even when people refuse to recognize him king of their lives, he still is king. And we should take comfort in that. But not only that, but that makes me, <laughs> I need to ask myself, is he king of my life? Is he king of my heart? Is he ruling and reigning in all that I do? Or am I just looking to him for fire insurance, as some like to say? But he's king. He's seated on his throne. Not only this, we continue on verse, not verse, chapter 48. So here in chapter 48, we see the glory of God in Zion. So 46 being, again, we, we keep, re, I keep repeating it. Repetition helps us to remember it. 46, we see God's deliverance, right? How he was delivered, what he did. 47 is praise or declara- declaration to the nations of what God has done. Now 48, we we see it's almost like somebody is taking um, these 
the people on a tour, and, and they're, they're, they're pointing out all these specific things, but they're sharing specifically to others what God has done. They're, it's like they're sitting and walking with him, showing him Zion, which is the city of Jerusalem, and telling him, telling them of the Lord. And, and I like that. That's, that's, think about it practically, right? We experience for ourselves God's salvation. We experience all that he's done in our life, Psalm 46. Our response is just praising the Lord, Psalm 47, and then we get to tell others of what he's done, Psalm 48. So uh, let's look at this, Psalm 48. He says there, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of our great king. So He's describing here Zion. When he hears Zion, you should know that that's speaking of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And a couple things, we, we began to talk about it earlier, but the city of Jerusalem is specific, or I guess it's unique, I should say, that's the, the better way to say it, is that it, it's up on a mountain, so it has these natural defenses around it. <laughs> it's pretty tough to fight going uphill. Did you ever, when we went on vacation this year, we, were, uh, we went to this place called the Dunes, and all it is, is it's like a desert, okay? And so there, um, it's literally just sand. It's like a, acres and acres and acres of a sandbox. It was pretty cool. But there's these places where there's like steep hills like this. And I mean, it's probably, what, 15 feet, would you say, Cade? The, those hills, they're pretty big. And so what me and the boys did, um, uh, Cade and, and Beck and Kai, is we went there and we played King of the Dune. <laughs> so... It was, it was uh, whoever could stay, go up to the top of the dune, make your way up. It was hard enough to run. But as you're going up, like we're grabbing each other's leg and pulling it down. But once you got up there, it was so much easier to throw the other people down because they, they were at a total disadvantage. They were trying to, trying to run in the sand. And uh, somehow, I don't, know, I don't know who did it. I do, but I'm not going to say. Um, but Jan ended up falling down the hill at one point. Um, but there's this natural defense when you get to be at the top of a hill. And that's what, that's what Jerusalem was. It was surrounded by, the, by this natural defense. But you know what? There was one place that was vulnerable. You see, if you go on a map and you look at the old city of Jerusalem, when it says here in verse um, 2, the joy of the whole earth, the Mount Zion on the sides of the north. Why in the world does God put that in there? Why does he say the sides of the north? There's a reason. The old city, if you were to look on a map, the one place that it was vulnerable to attack from the enemy was the north side of the city. So then that makes us ask, what, what's on the north side? You see, the north is where the temple of God was. And what's in the temple of God? Come on, you Bible scholars. What was it? The presence of God, exactly. The Ark of the Covenant. And it was on the mercy seat between the cherubim where God told his people, where he t- said, Moses, this is where I dwell. And so the one place where they were vulnerable, man, that's where the presence of God was. And what a picture for our lives. The places where we're weak, we're actually most strong because that's where God is glorified. That's where God, we, we look and we trust to him, especially in those places, Right? Isn't that a cool picture? Not only that, but I like that in verse 2, where he says, he calls it the joy of the whole earth. Why in the world, why Israel, why Jerusalem, the joy of the whole earth? You see, God chose Jerusalem 
excuse me, God chose Israel to be his people, not because they were great in number, but simply because he chose them. He chose them to be his nation, to be called his people, peculiar people unto him. And now we know that also um, that we are called his people. But you see, God used the whole nation. It was set, it was, the purpose of it was to be an example and a, a pattern for all the other nations and all the other people around to see him. He, they would see his holiness as, these, as, as this group of, this nation, they lived differently according to the law of God. The law of God reveals his character and his nature, Right? They were different because, you see, they, were, they served the true God who's able to save. And, and there is something, man, not just something, but someone in the midst of all the nation, the presence of God dwelling among them. And that was different. And so it says that, man, this is the joy of the whole earth. And for us, guys, that's, that's the reality of the presence of God in our life. Is, is joy for the earth around us to see and to know. In Psalm 1611, it says that in your presence is the fullness of joy. And we have the privilege of being able to enter into the presence of God at any time because of what, have Christ, what Christ has done for us. And the, the, the rest of the world, they're looking for joy. They're looking for something. They're looking for something that really matters, some weight. And it's all, as, as we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, it's soap bubbles. But you see, we get to take the presence of God with us and to share it with others and, and tell others about that. And so that's what the psalmist is saying here. Verse 3, he says that God is in her palaces. God is abiding there. It's not, it's not about the city itself. It's about God who dwells in the city. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by, they saw it, and they so, excuse me, and they saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled, they hastened away. Fear took hold of them, as, and pain as the woman in a birth pangs. Here's when she begins to get those, um, why did I just blink, what's it called? Labor pains, thank you. Labor pains. As a pain in a woman in her birth pangs, labor pains. Uh, they come suddenly, and as you break the ships of Tarshish with an east, east wind, in essence, that's, you know, a ship can be on the sea. The Lord can send a wind and wipe it out like that. So, so is, was his deliverance for the people, right? In one night, he saved his people. He destroyed the enemy. Verse 8, as we have heard, so we have seen. So they've heard it, they've seen it. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. Verse 9, we have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. And what are we to do in the midst of when we come to church even, when we gather together in the name of God? We're to think of his loving kindness, his has said towards us. David, he said, I think it's Psalm 63. Uh, don't quote me on that because I can't remember. But David said that, um, that his, your loving kindness, O Lord, is better than life itself. And so what can we set our minds on? God's graciousness. His, how merciful he's been to us, guys. And this isn't just like church talk. This isn't just like, oh, uh, fill in the time or whatever, just like good things that we should say. But you know the reality of what happens when we actually begin to apply these things? Your, my life, your life, it begins to change. 
What do we choose to put our mind on? The Bible tells us to set our minds on things above. Set your mind on Christ and see how it impacts the rest of, of your day of your life. Verse 10, he says that according to your name, O God, you see the character, the nature, the attributes of God continually being brought up, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. We're to praise God um, in spirit and in truth, right? When we sing, we're singing in reality to who he is. Verse 11, um, let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments, because you know that one day God will set all things right. He is the judge. We can even be glad now. We need not fret. Walk about Zion, verse 12. Go all around her. Count her towers. Mark all her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that you may tell, catch this, it to the generation following. For this is God our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even to death. So what are we to do now? See, you experience the salvation of the Lord. Maybe it's something practical in your life that God saves you and delivers you through, that he brings you through, a sickness, a a difficult time. We're to praise God for it. Tell others about it that they may glorify God. But more importantly than that, see, each and every one of us, Christ has come and he's He's come and he's died for our sins. He saved you and me. He is king. And we will all stand or bow our knees before him one day. And But what are we to do until that time when we're either raptured up to be with him or we, we die here on earth and we go to be present with the Lord? Is that you and I, we're to be telling others about him. And you see, here's a practical application for each and every one of us. As you live your life joyfully, and somebody asks, man, what's going on? Why can you do that? Tell them. Who cares what they think? Because it's eternity at stake. Parents, not even just parents, but anybody who has, <laughs> comes in, interacts with the, the next generation, tell them. Tell them what God has done. Don't just leave, as one pastor said, an inheritance for your kids that is material, that a judge can decide where it goes. Give them an inheritance that's incorruptible. Give them the Lord. So that's what we're called to do. And it's cool to know that, that he's our God forever. He always has been, he always will be God. But like he specifically says there, our God, is he your God and even this morning, if, if you've come here and you're saying, man, that sounds, that sounds good and, and uh, you're listening and, and, and you're struggling, you know, and he's not your God, if you can't say that he's your God, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. You know, the Bible says that we're to confess our sins and, and, and that we're, we're to say that, that he's our Lord, that we're to call upon him, that we're to agree with God that we are sinners and that we need a savior. And so this morning, um, as, the, as the worship team comes up, wherever you may be, as you, if you're going through something, um, we're going to pray afterwards. We're also going to ask the disciples to come up. Um, Brandon, he, he's going off to basic training. He's going to be serving our country in the military. So we're going to gather up here and uh, not hold hands, but we're going we're, we're gonna to be together, and we're going to pray for Brandon. But if you 
this morning, you need prayer, I'll be up here, Olivia, um, Mike, and Andy, come up, we'd love to pray for you. And again, as I was saying, if you have never given your life to the Lord, today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you, um, as we can read, Lord, what you have done in the past. Lord, we thank you that it's true today, that you are God today, and that you are able to deliver us from the enemy, or the hands of the enemy that we have no hope against. Lord, you've delivered us from Satan and the power of sin that we're deserving of, God. And this morning, Lord, I pray for anybody who, who doesn't know you, that this morning that they would surrender their hearts and their lives to you, or that they wouldn't wait. Lord, if you're tugging on anybody's heart, Lord, we also pray for this room, God. I'm sure that there's, there's people here who have difficulties going on in life, Lord. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a financial situation. Lord, we, we just pray that if it's your will, that you would um, guide them and that you would help them through that, Lord. But more importantly, Lord, if you choose not to, we pray that many would see you through that circumstance of life. And that whoever that person may be, that you would encourage them, God. That as they call out to you, that you hear them when they pray. God, that you see their situation. And one day, Lord, we will be in heaven with you where there's no more sickness, there's no more tears, there's no more crying, God. Because we'll be in your presence, singing your praise forever. So Lord, we thank you and we love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.